really is me. Short sleeves once in a while. I'm not, I'm not afraid. I just don't really enjoy it. How is everyone tonight? You good? We've been having some nice weather, I think. Nice weather. It's so wonderful to worship God. So wonderful. You know, there's a couple things I wanted to share tonight before I get into my message. The first was very personal. I just wanted to tell you rockers how grateful I am to God for you. How much I love you. You have a very special place in my heart. And I'm, I'm just so thankful and grateful and proud of you for showing up week after week to grow in your relationship with God. And I'm, I'm just very thankful that I get the opportunity to be part of this church and to be part of your lives and have you be part of mine. And the second thing I wanted to tell you, is this is very important. For those of you that are involved in house church, those of you that aren't, when you go out the doors tonight, before you go out for refreshments, there's a really cool rock info booth out there. And there's four rock house churches. At your next house church, which is the second and the fourth Sundays of the month of June. So the second Sunday of this month. You're going to hear some very exciting news that you're only going to hear at House Church. So I really want to encourage you to be there. Tell your other friends. The guys will send out a special email. But it's really important that you're there because um, they're going to have some really neat stuff to share with you. So please put that in your calendar. Let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you tonight for the extraordinary privilege of knowing you. The extraordinary privilege not only of knowing you, but of you knowing us. And being loved by you. And we think about, Lord, last week when we looked at the passage in Colossians that tells us we are your chosen, dearly loved children. We just thank you tonight, Lord, that you aren't regretting the fact that you're stuck with us. That you're not exasperated with us. That you're not put out with us. That you don't despise us. That you like us. That you love us. That you enjoy us. That you rejoice over us with shouts of joy. And we pray tonight, Father, that you'd speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're going to end this series on the right way to live. And if I were to put in a simple sentence what we're trying to say, what the primary goal of a Christian is, and what is the right life, it is a life lived to please God. Not a life lived to please your parents. Not a life lived to please your friends. Not a life lived to please the world we live in. But a life that's lived to please God. Now you say to yourself, well Mark, what is that? What does that look like? That's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us what a wise life looks like. The Bible teaches us what a life looks like that pleases God. The Bible teaches us what a life looks like that God created us to live. And that's what we've been going over. And obviously I haven't talked extensively about the consequences of not living a life that pleases God, but we did get into some of that in the beginning of the series. But it's a disaster. You remember the story that Jesus told? Maybe some of you remember when you were very young and you might have gone to a vacation Bible school or a Sunday school of some kind or some kind of religious education and there's a little song about the wise man and the foolish man and, and the foolish man builds his house, his life on the shifting sands of popular opinion. 
The, the foolish man builds his life and his morality on what he feels like and what the world around him tells him. The problem with that is that when the storms of life come and the difficulties of life come, which they always do, and when we ignore, because the foolish man, the Bible says, ignores the advice of God, your life is ruined. And the Bible says that ruin is complete. It's destroyed. But the wise man, Jesus said, is the one who listens to me and builds his life on the rock, on Christ. When you listen to my words and obey me, Jesus said, you're wise. You're wise. And then when the storms of life come and they beat down on your life, though you may lose a shingle or two or the glass window breaks, you're going to remain. Your life is going to remain and your eternity is going to remain. And tonight in the book of Colossians, we're going to finish off <clears throat> um, what it looks like to live the right kind of life. And um, you could do me a favor, somebody, and you can have all the fans because they blow my pages and then I can't see them. So if someone brave, thank you very much, just wants to turn that other fan off of me, that would be great. And you guys can have all the coolness. In Colossians, we left off last week in Colossians chapter 3. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your heart. For as members of one body you were called to live in peace and always be thankful and appreciative. Let the words of Christ in all their richness live in your heart and make you wise. Use His words to teach and counsel each other. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with a thankful and grateful heart. And whatever you do or say, let it be as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the while giving thanks through Christ to God the Father. I want to comment on this before we move on to the rest of the text. And let the peace of Christ, the peace that comes from Christ, rule in your heart. <clears throat> I was watching an interview once with Dustin Hoffman. And someone, uh, excuse me, Robin Williams. And um, the, the lady who was interviewing was asking him all about his life and his fame. And, and uh, he certainly had a marvelous career. And then she said, is there anything you wish you had that you don't? <clears throat> and for whatever reason, Robin Williams got very, very quiet. And he got very serious. Which, you know, he's a comedian. Very funny guy. <clears throat> and he got kind of emotional. A little bit choked up. And he said, peace. I would give anything to have peace. And I don't know how to get it. Jesus said, peace I give to you, not like the world. Do not be troubled. Do not be troubled, for I have overcome the world. God leaves us with a gift of peace. That as we learn in our life, and it's something we learn, it's something we have through Christ, but it's something we learn to use because we're not naturally peaceful creatures. We get frustrated, we get anxious, we get worried, we get afraid, we get concerned. And those are very natural human reactions, very much like a little child. Or maybe they're afraid of a caterpillar. And then as they get older, they realize, oh, the caterpillar can't hurt me. As they get older, as they, when they're young, maybe the dog barking frightens them. And they get older, they realize, oh, the dog won't hurt me. Maybe when they're small and the lights turn off at night, they cry because they want a little light on. But as they get older, they realize the dark won't bother me. 
And we're the same way. We begin to realize as we grow in Christ that we've been given a birthright from God. And, and that birthright is peace in the midst of difficulties. And then there's that peace that God intended to be between us and our relationships because we're part of one body. And then the Bible tells us to always be thankful. And the thought here is to live in a state of appreciation. It's easy, isn't it, in our world to be very <clears throat> discontent. The Bible tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. <clears throat> contentment comes much easier to us when we learn to appreciate whatever we have. Sometimes it's helpful to me to go through on a daily basis, both a verbal but first a mental checklist of just things I can be grateful for. That I can appreciate in my life. Appreciate that I can see. Appreciate that I can move my hands. Appreciate that I can walk. So many things we take for granted. We never stop to even thank God or think about, Lord, thank you that I can see. Last night, my wife and I, we were indulging a guilty pleasure watching So You Think You Can Dance. Aha, some others have been joining us in that, I see. And, um, you know, I, I'm pretty obvious I'm a sentimental individual. But I think I've become more so ever since my daughter's uh, um, sickness and illness. And, and there was a guy last night about this tall. Evidently this is his third season he's shown up on the show, but I didn't know that because I haven't watched it before. I haven't quite been in the mood for you think you could dance. And he's got severe scoliosis of the spine. And he's in a lot of pain, and uh, eventually it's going to, you know, totally immobilize him. <clears throat> but he has this unbelievable ability to um, do this certain kind of dance. I guess you'd call it the robotic kind of dance. But um, I, I would just, I was, I just started sobbing. I, I was, it was so touching. And he was just when they talked to him, they interviewed him. He was so, in a good way, not not in a obnoxious way, but just so positive, so grateful that he could at least do something he loved, that he found something that he loved, and, and the judges, they're kind of getting all choked up, and they're like, man, you're just so inspiring. And I, and I just started thinking, Lord, I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful I can move, I can walk, that I'm not in constant pain every, I may have some pain, but I'm not in constant pain every minute. There's those things. And I'm just grateful that I, I live in a free country where we can gather in the name of Christ. I'm grateful that I have a car that works. I'm grateful that the air conditioning works in that car. I'm grateful that I have a bed to sleep. And I'm grateful that I have a refrigerator that keeps the food cold. I'm grateful that I have a deck to sit on. i got a ceiling fan to blow the air around the house. I, I'm grateful. And sometimes, to be honest... We go through lots and lots of days, sometimes weeks, never stopping to verbalize or internalize in our heart and in our mind appreciation. Appreciation. Something that's helped me is to, um, I rarely, and some of you who've ever received this know me, but I rarely pass up an opportunity ever to appreciate the saints that write me emails. By saints, I mean believers. I don't know if you know this. But the Bible refers to you as saints. Sorry if that sounds like a weird word. A Christian is a saint. 
And if I get a chance, I just try to write back, thank you so much for serving this church. I'm so touched by your life. I try to encourage them and appreciate and give honor to those individuals. It's something we have to learn to make a habit in our life. But it's so much better than going through life all the time bemoaning what we don't have. And then after we get through the physical things, there's all the spiritual things that God has given us. There's our relationship with God. There's the character of God. I was thinking tonight, to be honest, I don't want anyone to take this wrong. I really love this song, Beautiful. I really like the song. But, it's interesting how we even can look at God based on what He looks like instead of the beauty of who He is. And we can appreciate that beauty right now. He's good to me. He's faithful to me. He loves me. He's compassionate to me. He's merciful. Those are the characteristics that make God beautiful just like a human being. It's not about what's on the outside of God, what's on the outside of you. His creation does not so much reveal His beauty as His wisdom, His creativity, His divine power, as Romans says, His divine attributes can be clearly seen through what He has made. That's beautiful. That's profound. Now God, of course, is beautiful. He's breathtaking and one day we'll see that. And yet you know what's really interesting about the description? The only description in the entire Bible of Jesus Christ is found in Isaiah 53. And you know what it says? It says, He had no natural beauty that you would be drawn to Him. He was His one from whom we would turn our face. Jesus was not attractive. The Bible, and that was before He was beaten. After He was beaten, He was repulsive. Jesus was not like, you know, he was the antithesis of what you see on the front of GQ magazine. He was the antithesis of what you'd see on any magazine. It wasn't that he was just profoundly ugly. He was just ordinary, would not have stood out in a crowd. But oh, the beauty of that man. And then we go on tonight, I'm going to talk about something very important. I want to talk about marriage, I want to talk about the family, I want to talk about us as human beings, according to the scripture. And I want to remind you before I get into the scripture here tonight, these passages, that God has your best interest in mind. So I'll read the text and then I'll comment on it. Paul goes on then to say, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, I'm not there yet. Let the words of Christ in all their richness live in your heart and make you wise. Now what have we been doing in, in house church? We've been going through Psalm 119. <clears throat> and what's Psalm 19 all about? The Word of God. The Word of God, the Word of God. And here we have in Colossians, what does it tell us? Let the words of Christ, let the Christian truth of God's Word dwell richly in your heart, given an abundant home in your heart. What does that mean? It means that you know it. It means that you think about it. It means that it's on your mind. It doesn't mean that <clears throat> you never think about something else. That you don't once in a while dream about a Chipotle burrito. That you don't appreciate the beauty around you. But it's interesting how often all kinds of other things fill our heart. Worries can fill our heart. Fears can fill our heart. Insecurity can fill our heart and our mind. Our own personal dreams, our own desires. But God wants His Word to dwell in our heart. And when that tr happens, it makes us wise. It makes us wiser than we are. And we use His words 
to teach one another, to counsel each other, to give each other wise advice and encouragement. And we are to sing. Here's a command. Just as we did tonight, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with a grateful heart. Jeremy shared a few weeks ago, but it's true. We don't just do music like it's filler. We're obeying God together. He tells us to let psalms fill our heart, sing spiritual songs. And we don't just sing them to Him, we're singing them to each other as we sing with a grateful heart to God. <clears throat> and whatever you do, whatever you say, remember that you're a representative of Christ. <clears throat> remember that you represent the Lord. And do it in such a way. Strive to do it. None of us are going to do it perfectly. In a way that would honor God and reflect well on God. Now, <clears throat> I want to get to one of those controversial verses in the Bible. I'm going to do my best to explain it. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is that you accept it. Whether you understand it or not. <clears throat> Wives must submit to your husband as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. And you husbands must love your wife and never treat her harshly. You children must always obey your parents, for this is what pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't aggravate your children. Don't exasperate them, lest they become discouraged and lose heart and quit trying. You slaves must obey your earthly master in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Obey them willingly because you have your reverent respect of the Lord. Work hard and cheerfully at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and the master that you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you'll be paid back for that wrong that you have done for God has no favorites that can get away with evil so I want to comment on this tonight because it's, it's very profound and it's very important I, I'll give you a little metaphor I was driving down the highway the other day and I saw something and I, I'm going to ask you even though I can't see you I'm going to ask you if you've ever seen anything like this before how many of you have seen one of these Harley guys riding down his beautiful Harley Davidson with a girl behind him with her arms wrapped around him anybody see anything like that before? Just say yes, then I can hear you. Yes, okay. How many of you have ever seen the reverse? The big old Harley guy sitting in the back, and little petite girls driving the Harley, and he's holding on to her. Is that dumb looking or what? I mean, it's just, it is so unnatural. And I commented this to my wife. I said, that is a perfect metaphor of marriage. That's the way it's supposed to be, but hardly anybody runs their marriage like that. The guys... He's in charge. He's got the handlebars. She's holding on for dear life. He's steering where they go. And she's enjoying the ride. That's an example of what's the natural order of things. But it looked so strange. I'm talking about a motorcycle now. Not a car. I'm talking about a motorcycle. But it's so odd when you see a girl and she's sitting up there. And a big old guy's got his arms around her. like... It's just odd. Be honest. It's strange. Sorry, you think I'm prejudiced all day, but it's just a metaphor. If you want to ride with your boyfriend and you drive and he sits behind you, whatever.
I'd like to read this to you in a different passage uh, from a different version. It's called the Amplified Bible. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Subordinate and adapt yourself to them as is right and fitting and your proper duty in the Lord. Now, we can pretend that's wrong or we can cut it out of the Bible, but if you want your marriage to work, these two things are very, very important. The first is that a wife needs to understand that God in His design this is, by the way, why we believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Because the Bible teaches that. God teaches that. God is the one who designed marriage. God is the one who created them, male and female. God is the one who put the first couple together in the garden. And his name was Adam and hers was Eve. <clears throat> and God has given the responsibility to the wife, the female, to submit to the authority that God's given to the husband. Now, husband, here's the beauty, here's the thing you need to understand. We didn't ask for this. It's, it's not, I want you to really know, it's not all that fun to have all that, the, that particular responsibility or that authority bequeathed upon us. The word doesn't mean that the wife gives up all of her rights and she never has an opinion and she never says anything. That's not what it means. But it means that in this relationship, if it's going to work, there's got to be order. There's got to be order. Have you ever seen the reverse? Oh, maybe many of you grew up in a family like that. And I can tell you right now, it's really awkward. <clears throat> I've told this to men before, particularly fathers, but it's true of men. The number one, the number one sin that I see many men struggling with in their life is passivity. They're passive. You can't be passive. You've got a responsibility to lead your wife, to lead your family. And she has the responsibility to look to you. Now, she can counsel you, advise you, reprove you. If you're a wise man, the Bible says a wise man <coughs> accepts criticism. The wise man listens to reproof. And there's no one who's going to know you better than your wife. No one who loves you more on a daily basis than your wife. But God, this is very important to understand. The Bible tells the Corinthians that God is a God of order, not a God of disorder. And if you understand society, the family is the building block of a healthy nation. We forget that the first institution in which God created in the world was marriage. The second institution was the nation of Israel, not the church. It was the nation. Now the nation of Israel was a theocracy. That is, God was to lead the nation. And God gave them both civil law, moral law, and religious or spiritual laws. In order for the nation to be healthy, the family had to be healthy. In order for the nation to have order, the family had to have an order. There is no nation that does well that is not led well. There is no merit. And in order to lead well, our government authorities have to have a, a vested Authority to lead. If no one has authority, if no one has that responsibility, nothing happens. The sheep just look at each other. The people, well, what do we do? I don't know, what do we do? What do we do? I don't know what to do. And there's chaos. 
The same is true in the family. The same is true in the family. God designed there be order, not chaos. And God has charged a husband with the responsibility to do a couple things. To lead his family, to love his wife, to be affectionate, this is the Amplified, to be affectionate, sympathetic, and gent- gentle with them, and to not be harsh, bitter, or resentful to them. I had an interesting experience today. I looked at the word gentle, and I was shocked. First of all, it doesn't mean what you think it means. And it had all these different meanings, like gentle as an adjective, gentle as a noun, gentle as a verb, gentle as a transitory, I can't even remember what it was. And the word, one of the essence of the word is to be agreeable. Husbands, be agreeable. Get along with your wives. This isn't about power. God did not invest you with authority <coughs> to command and, 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 and beat down and be abusive to your wife. But Christ, how did he use his authority? He laid it down. No greater love is a man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. The upright husband, the godly husband, uses his authority in a way that sacrifices self for the good of his spouse and the good of his family. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes the most loving thing we say to our children is no. But we've got to learn to lead. We've got to learn to do it in love. We've got to learn to do it in a spirit that... works to build her up and encourage her, not beat her down. For what does husbands, in Ephesians, what does it tell us? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Does he beat us down? Does he dishearten us? Does he discourage us? We are to love her like Christ loved us, sacrificially. He gave up his life for us. He was generous towards us. What if he generous with her in praise, with our resources, with our kindness, with our service? But then it says, wives, submit to your husbands as Christ, as the church, that's us, submits to Christ. Well, we all know we're supposed to submit to Christ. A wife is to submit to her husband. When this is worked at, You're going to have a marriage that will work, that will satisfy you. Not always, because it's going to be about dying to yourself. But you're going to have a marriage that honors God. You're going to have a marriage that pleases God, because that's the right way to go about it. It's not like it's one of many sweet options. It is the right option. And then we go on and it says, children, obey your parents. Now the children is speaking of here. We're all children of somebody. He's speaking of children that are living at home under the authority of their parents. The first thing to notice is that most parents have authority. They have authority. And we're to use that authority for the good of the child. We're to use that authority to train them. We're to use that authority to love them. We're to use that authority to bless them. But they're responsible, and we're responsible to train them because we all know, you watch some little children on here, they are so beautiful. I thought, I was telling somebody, you know, I should just surround myself with little children tonight. We've got so many of them here. 
But I tell you right now, children don't train themselves. You won't find a child in the world who trains themselves. They do not train themselves. If left alone, Proverbs says a child will bring shame to his mother. They will. They'll do naughty things. They'll poop in their pants. <laughs> my little grandson recently, I hope my daughter doesn't kill me for this. She was telling me, oh dad, you're getting, this is going to blow your mind. She said, one of your little grandsons, I will not name which one. I came downstairs the other day and he had his diaper off and he was playing with his poop and it was all over everything. <laughs> I still love him. I hug him, kiss him all over. I mean, I love that little guy. But left to themselves, children do really dumb things. Oh, he didn't know any better. And she'd only, you know, with little kids sometimes, it's just, you walk out of the room to get the other child and you come back and like, oh, how did that happen? I was gone 30 seconds. It wasn't that there was neglect involved. It that there was another child that needed to be gotten up from their nap. And by the time we got down, oh my gosh, oh, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. And I could share with the other friends stories, but you know, those stories happen. Children obey your parents. Now, you know what that implies? It means parents are giving commands. It means parents are leading. It means parents are guiding so that the child has a decision to make to obey or disobey. But the single most important thing you're going to teach your small children that will carry them well through life when they finally have a heavenly father is to obey. To obey and to learn to do it quickly and to learn to do it no matter what you feel like because the sooner you get there, the better off you're going to be. And this is the command of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, Fathers, and, and, and of course children obeying their parents is what pleases the Lord. That's the, that's the impact of what I want you to understand. It pleases the Lord. That's a life that pleases God. Fathers, do not aggravate your children. Do not, do not overcorrect them. If you do, they'll become discouraged and quit trying. I've seen this so many times with fathers. It's easy to expect more from a little child. Sometimes, sometimes our standards are not high enough. And sometimes as dads, our standards were just too critical. And we can criticize and we can nitpick and we can just take the heart right out of a child. And here's what you need to understand. You may think, oh, I'm doing my job. They just won't obey. No, chances are here in this situation, you took the heart out of them. And they don't want to try anymore. Fathers, we've got to learn how. Not to discourage them, not to be harsh with them, but to learn to give firm but loving commands. And then teach them to comply. We need to learn how to bring out the best in them. We need to learn how to praise them. We need to learn how to put encouragement and courage into their little heart. And then lastly, you slaves must obey your earthly master and everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching. Obey them willingly because you're of your reverent respect of the Lord. Work hard and cheerfully at whatever you do as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance because He's your master. And the real master you're serving is Christ. I want to make a comment on this. It's very important that you understand and then we'll close. Paul was giving instructions when, when the Bible writes about slavery in the New Testament, the Bible's not approving slavery. The Bible's not saying, oh, slavery's a good thing. Paul is giving instruction for a reality and an institution that many of the Christians in the early church lived in every day. He was not endorsing it. He was not saying, oh, slavery's wonderful. Hey, you Christians keep buying and selling people. That's not what he was saying. 
Anyone who's ever used the Bible to say in the New Testament that slavery is approved by God is an imbecile. It was a reality in the ancient world everywhere on every continent. And God was giving instruction for that reality. For that reality. If you're a Christian, and by the way, in the early church, scholars believe that at least half of much of the early Christians were slaves because of that good news. They were so responsive. They were like many today in third world countries. The lowest stratosphere of society. They're hungry for Jesus Christ. It's the uppity uppity affluent Europeans and Americans. They don't have time for Christ. But the poor and the needy who understand their real state and are humble in spirit, they are often very responsive to Christ. And that was true in the New Testament. And so multitudes of slaves that were owned by someone else came to Christ. And Paul's saying, now listen, honor God by honoring your master. Remember you're serving Christ. You're living for eternity. Remember what we read earlier? Set your mind on things above. Slave, don't set your mind on here now, but on eternity. Serve God. Work hard for the Lord. You're going to get rewarded. What's our application? Our application is our employer. Our employer. Work hard. Submit to the direction they give you unless the scripture's only exception is it's unrighteous and it's immoral. Then we must honor God above that one that manages us. And do your work with all your heart, with enthusiasm, with a cheerfulness, with a good attitude. Because it's for Christ. And then, here's what's powerful, and this is really true. Christians, we have a master in heaven the slavery of Christianity has never ended. We have been bought with a price and we're to glorify God with our body. So even though today in modern America we may not have traditional slavery, you may not know this, but there's more slavery today than at any time in the history of the world. There's more slaves. But it's different. It takes different forms. You don't hear a lot about it. A lot of it is in different parts of the world. And a lot of it's very illegal. Some of it's not illegal. But we are a permanent slave of Jesus Christ. We are also his son, his daughter, his bride, his family, his body. He loves us. But in a very real sense, we're his slave. And we're to serve him, realizing we're going to get an eternal reward for the service that we give to God in this body as long as we live. Let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you tonight for the things that it teaches us. We ask you, Lord, to give us the courage and the strength to do it. To do it. Help us to live it out. Help us to choose the right way to live. In Jesus' name, amen.